You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, what we've got for you today is a little bit different from the norm in terms of our episodes. I had the pleasure of being able to converse with Alex and Peter from the History's Most podcast about one of the wars in history that quite often gets left off the radar for many, especially in the Western world, the Taiping Rebellion that ripped through the Qing Dynasty right in the middle of the two also terrible Opium Wars in the 1850s and 1860s. It's a great conversation and I hope you will check it out. Also be sure to pop on over and look at their other episodes over at History's Most Podcast. They've got about 35 out right now, ranging from conspiracy theories to the greatest imposters in history to forgotten fighters and so much more. It's really great. And now, on with the interview. Imagine yourself as part of a massive army fighting in one of the bloodiest wars in all of human history. Your leader, a man named Hong Shu Chuan, is someone who believes himself to be divine. In fact, he believes himself to be the brother of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but his generals include people who claim to channel both the voices of God and Jesus. His enemy, the Qing Dynasty, in his mind are literal demons who must be cleansed from the world, seemingly because God told him to in a dream. This is the bizarre yet tragic story of the Taiping Rebellion, history's worst civil war. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another very special episode of History's Most. My name is Peter. And I'm Alex, and it's our pleasure today to be joined by Chris Stewart of the History of China podcast. Hey, everybody. Um, And Chris is joining us to talk about something that actually one of our listeners got in touch and asked us to do an episode on, um, and that is the Taiping Rebellion. Um, before we get into the chat, I just want to um, set the scene a little bit here. We are doing a three time zone Zoom call um, between Shanghai, the UK, and the East Coast of the United States. So it's a, I think that's a first for history's most. I, I think it's um, the first tricontinental um, history's most, certainly. Yeah. So, you know, already. We're all certainly making stuff. history, I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so today's topic, the Taiping Rebellion, is something that I must admit I did not and do not know a great deal about, which is why we've reached out to Chris. And if you're sitting there like me and wondering what all this is about, well, it's a civil war in 19th century China. So Chris, I want to start by asking you to set the scene for our listeners. China in the you know mid-19th century 
what sort of a country is it? What sort of government does it have? What sort of you know regimes in place? What's going on, basically? Yeah, well, that certainly is the place to start. Um, China in the mid to late 19th century was a, uh, a rather chaotic place to be. Um, it had been going through a lot of turmoil, internal rebellion, as well as external uh, both invasion and, and conflict. Uh, in fact, today, uh, to, to this day, uh, in China, it is referred to as uh, really the, the outset or the, the major part of what they call the century of humiliation, where the Chinese even to this day feel as though with a, with a lot of reason um, that they were sort of uh, brought down and, well, it's right there in the name, isn't it? Humiliated as a country and a nation and as a, and as a people, uh, largely due to external powers. Uh, that began actually several decades prior to the Taiping Rebellion, culminating in the um, first the, the first Opium War, and then the uh, the second Opium War, around which the Taiping Rebellion was uh, also a part of. So it kind of takes place in this whole major uh, international and intranational conflict, where there's both this pulling apart of the nation and the dynasty from within, and also this imperialist multinational force from without uh, sort of ripping apart it itself at its outsides. Um, to that same effect, the Qing dynasty itself, even though it had been the controlling power of China since the uh, mid-17th century, um, it had never... <laughs> oh, how to put it. It has never gotten over the fact, I wanted to say, but it had never tried to get over the fact um, as well, that it was a, a an outsider or a foreign dynasty, a conquest dynasty to begin with. Uh, the Qing dynasty was uh, based on the, the Manchurian uh, Isengyorio um, clan from what is today um, northeastern China. Um, but they're not ethnically Chinese. And so they had come in, conquered, and then ruled for several hundred years at that point, but had never integrated themselves into the larger Chinese society. So as a just a baseline, at least, that's where China stands, pulled apart from within and from without. It's a pretty um, bleak picture, I suppose. Um, and in terms of so we've got the colonial powers beginning to, well, more than just getting involved in, in China, quite quite um, playing playing a kind of active role in shaping Chinese history by now, um, mm -hmm. and quite a malevolent one at that. Um, in terms of the actual society then, um, I presume that China at that time was still, you know, quite underdeveloped. You know, if that's the right word to use, um, or you can, you know, you can prove me wrong there. Um, was it was the societal, you know? Oh no, 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 no. That's that's an accurate depiction. Go on. Uh, so it's it's yeah. 
And oh, sorry, no, I was just saying, no, that's an accurate depiction. Uh, China, you could you would very be very accurate in characterizing it as a uh, agrarian, um, unindustrialized, um, a feudalistic society in most, if not all, respects. Yes. And what was there, because I know this is going to play a big part in the Taiping Rebellion, in terms of um, religion and faith, what was the role of that and what, what faiths were dominant in oh. Chinese society? Okay, excellent. Excellent question. Um, the Taiping Rebellion and the, the Taiping movement in general is at once both a great anomaly within uh, Chinese society and history, and also, and this is, seems really, really strange, um, it's also part of a lo much longer tradition. Um, so what I mean by that is that the Taiping Rebellion itself um, takes on large elements of Christianity. Um, the, the leader of the Taiping Rebellion, a guy named Hong Xiuquan, Hong Xiuquan, um, he uh, purports himself to be or has visions of being the younger brother of Jesus Christ. And that he has had visions of meeting with God the Father in the Judeo-Christian um, purview. But at the same time, he, he, so he, that's his vision that begins this movement. But at the same time, it taps into this much larger underlying uh, network of sects, which has actually gone back centuries prior to this. The White Lotus, the Red Turbans, all of these groups of uh, outsider, sectarian, and highly religious, dogmatic groups um, come together and split apart and then come together again. Um, so in terms of belief, it is both uh, an infusion of an outsider foreign belief system, but then syncretized with a long-standing tradition of using outsider traditions and beliefs to further internal reform, change, and revolution. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, um, you're saying it goes back centuries in Chinese history. It's also fairly common, you could say, in world history that, you know, the politics and religion can't really be separated out until you know, in the West, there's probably the second half of the 19th century anyway. So, hand, you know, religious and political movements going hand in hand is hardly anything um, distinctly Chinese. But what I do want to think about with with this, um, this movement, this kind of quasi-Christian um, movement, I presume the Christian elements have come from Westerners, missionaries spreading you know, trying to spread the Christian faith to the East. Um, but it's not quite um, Christianity, is it? No, it is not quite Christianity uh, in any of its forms. And uh, probably if you uh, asked them at the time themselves, they, they would not uh, 
truly recognize themselves as being quote unquote Christian either. They, they would have called themselves, a, a, if I'm remembering it right, a, the God worshiping society uh, where the tenets of Western Christianity didn't truly apply to them where essentially as with any new uh, faith, as with any new faith or, or what have you, it was sort of the, the old doctrines are the old doctrines and those are well and good, but now is the time that we have a, a new prophet, a new holy individual, and through him we receive a new word and understanding, and that is the new tenant of the faith. And that, that is kind of the basis around which um, Hong Xiuquan built his um, society his rebellion and for a time period, at least his nation. Can you tell us a bit about this, this character then, Ho, Ho Sheng Chang? Um, what was his background? How did he come to obviously believe well, yeah. he, he was leading this brother of Christ movement? Sure. Well, um, this guy, Hong Xiu Chen, he was from southeastern coastal china um he was of um, an ethnic minority uh, actually so he wasn't han chinese per se he was uh, a minority called the hakka which are still uh, of a very large percentage of the population in places like uh, fujian and and uh, taiwan and even uh, northern uh, guang uh, guangxi and he, like many of the time period and before and far after even to today, what he wanted to do as sort of a, an up-and-coming young man was to uh, take and pass the Imperial Civil Service Examination. The Imperial Civil Service Examination was the test, it's sort of like the ACT or the SAT or... I don't know what you guys have in England that's similar to that, but it's the um, the test that you take to determine whether or not you get to move up into the official class and become an actual imperial government officer. Um, so he took it. <laughs> and as with many of these people who try, he failed. Um, and he failed multiple times which is, again, not uncommon. The imperial examination was designed to be extremely difficult and to uh, have the majority of its applicants fail. I heard there was a, like a 1% pass rate. And there was also, you know, murmurings of some bribery possibly going on in the background, things like that. So, yeah, sounds like it was pretty, pretty tough to pass. Oh my goodness. Bribery in China? You th what? I've never heard of such a thing. Uh, no, no I'm, I'm kidding you, of course. Uh, no, that was endemic, and it is endemic. Um, it happens all the time. And it did at that point as well. Uh, but my, my, my brain is still stuck... Uh, Many centuries, many centuries before this, but I know that at least in the the Tang and the Song dynasties, um, in the the 
eighth to about 13th centuries, um, at least at the initial levels, it was about a 75% fail rate. Right. So, <laughs> so, so this goes back a long, a long time. Oh, goodness. Yes. Yes. It was initially um, uh, codified and, and put into official practice during the Tang Dynasty in the in the eighth century, right? And it had been going on usually for the, the subsequent uh, thousand years. So um, I get a sense that uh, this failing of an exam and those life prospects being stolen. Uh, or taken away is probably going to have an influence on people. I'm, you know, I'm trying not to think of an obvious example of someone failing an exam. It, it going into a political movement, but anyway. Um, so I presume then I this is the this is the basis of um, a kind of religious conversion, and then he clearly already had some aspirations to move up in the world politically as well. Well, yeah, it's it's hard to say for sure how much of it was. I mean, how, how much of it is actually just sort of, oh, I couldn't pass the exam and so I will find some other method. And how much of it might have been some sort of actual uh, inspiration, if you want to call it that, or 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 perhaps holy guidance or or what have you. What we what we know of it is that um, he seems to have been sickly his entire life. Um, he seems to have gone through long periods, especially of his early life, of being uh, bedridden, of going through, I don't know if we would call it sort of comatose periods or what have you, but certainly periods where he would just sort of be out of it. Um, and so it seems like he had... Um, been given some information about uh, from from European Christians about Christianity. So he'd been given this sort of, of pamphlet or whatever, and he'd read it. And then he kind of, after his latest failed examination in the 18, late 1830s, early 1340s, I forget exactly. Um, he, he's read this information. He's kind of taken it into his own mind and purview and then he falls into one of these fugue states or these these sick periods of his um and he comes out of it having had what he purports at least to be a, a vision from god which is that um he now he he gets it he understands it he is just he's boom it's like a beam of light from the heaven directly into his brain i now have the answer. The answer is not to um, take a test again, because that sucks, and I'm bad at it. Uh, the answer is not to try to go through the system. The answer is to make my own system. Uh, and my system says that I'm the guy uh, in charge, and I am the guy right underneath the main guy, um, who's Jesus, who's actually my older brother. And so you guys should follow me because we're going to we're going to upend this whole situation. We're going to upend this whole um, corrupt state that I can't get through on my own merits. Um, and I don't have the money 
to pay or bribe <laughs> to get through on that um, methodology. So let's just overthrow the whole thing and let's uh, create a new situation that will be better for me, at least. So how does he go from springing out of bed, believing to be the younger brother of Jesus and believing that it's it's his role, his kind of holy ordained role to overthrow the system? How does he go from one one man who has this idea to leading a gigantic scale, you know, rebellion? How does he actually convince, you know, millions of people to follow both his political and religious kind of cause? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I would say that uh, a lot of it is that he taps into a an undercurrent that has been a part of his society for a long time before, which is a seething nativist resentment against the powers that be. Like I said before, um, his is a country ruled by people who are not his own. And I mean, that's one thing. But the Imperial Qing uh, Eisen clan have never so much as tried to make themselves more natively Chinese. They have sealed themselves off in Beijing, largely. They have um, imposed uh, strict standards on the wider native Chinese population, such as the, the haircut edict, which says that they must keep their hair in the long ponytail queue style, um, which is what you see in a lot of Kung Fu movies of the period. Uh, to the point where if some, if, if a man was caught uh, by authorities not having that hairstyle, um, they would be liable to lose their heads in punishment um, unless they could provide a very good reason, such as they were a Taoist priest, for instance, uh, they were exempt from that. But otherwise, um, it was a, a death penalty if you were caught without that uh, tonsure. So there was a lot of um, undercurrents of resentment and, and rage. The other thing that he taps into is, I, I think I mentioned this again before, um, is a is a the, the the word itself is a little bit inapplicable, but it functions well enough that I think we could use it. Uh, millenarianism, sort of this this ideology that the end of the world is nigh, or at least a fundamental change uh, to the the very the very aspects of being is is about to come around. Uh, this actually is the very basis of the preceding dynasty, in fact, the Ming dynasty, which is what I'm uh, looking at and doing in my own show right now, um, which ends up overthrowing the uh, Mongol Yuan dynasty in the, the 14th century. And all of this is um, 
a syncretic movement where they start blending different faiths and different ideas together, both indigenous beliefs like Taoism and Confucianism, but then also infusing that with external elements in the in the Yuan Dynasty with the Red Turban Rebellion and the rise of the Ming, that was this sort of millenarian uh, ideology of uh, Buddhism called Maitreism, and then also even stuff all the way as far away as, as, as Persia, uh, which was uh, Manichaeism. But now in the time of Hong Xiuquan, he's blending in this sort of Protestant Christianity. And I'm sure that all three of us know that Protestant Christianity can itself be pretty millenarian and pretty apocalyptic when it wants to be. It's oh, it's yes, easy enough to yes. to find those aspects in it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's yeah, it starts stirring the pot, starts mixing all these elements in together and taps into that undercurrent of just screw this system. The system is against all of us, so let's just blow it all up. And it's not that hard to find a sizable portion of the population who say yeah let's do it so you've got um well kind of a variety of um forces kind of ripping society apart i suppose and at the very top being a, a foreign um oppressive elite um which is pretty easy to you know to have it's a pretty ideal enemy for a rebellion um a foreign oppressive elite then you can say yeah you know let's get rid of them um so as um hong shong chang is turning his kind of message into a rebellion what's the reaction of of the the powers that be the the authorities the you know the, the Qing dynasty right i'm jane perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Well, obviously they don't like it. <laughs> um, they commit themselves to suppressing this and at, at virtually any cost. Um, during the, gosh, what is it? 14, 15 years of this rebellion? Yeah, about I'm, that. I think, yeah. I think I'm somewhere I think, in there. I think it's about 15 years long around that. 15 years long. Yeah. You've, you've got these two <laughs> uh, foreign invasions, the two opium wars, basically bookending the whole thing. And in each of those wars against a, a foreign enemy, even on the Qing dynasty's side, you've, you're looking at several thousand people lost 
total. And usually on the, the British side, several dozen or maybe a couple hundred. Um, that's, that's, that's both of them together. But it, <laughs> ice cream sandwiched in the middle of that is, is this um, internal war, and that's real, uh, the, that is what it is. It's a full-on war where you get somewhere between the, the numbers are fuzzy, as these things tend to be somewhere between 20 and 30 million people dead. Now, not all of them are combatants. Um, a lot of them are innocent civilians who just got get caught up in the, oftentimes they get caught up in the governmental response and crackdown to the goings-on of the uh, God-following society, the Taiping movement. Um, but it is a tremendous, it is an unbelievably tremendous loss of life. It is. It dwarfs uh, anything else in China going on at the point, at least up until the, the Boxer Rebellion, decades later. And so you get, like you say, a proper, you know, full-on war develops between the imperial regime and the um, what calls itself the Heavenly Kingdom, um, which obviously is is this variant um mishmash kind of faith um what what's the kind of nature of the war is this kind of like a conventional war with fronts and things like that or is this more a guerrilla conflict well there uh, there are elements of of both in that i think what you're when we say a, a guerrilla conflict we're looking at a very flowing uh conflict with with very few set borders and i mean that that's very much in the style of the 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 chinese civil war that would come later on uh, and there are definitely elements of that because there are segments of the populace all throughout the empire that agree with or act as agents of the taiping heavenly kingdom um and just Incidentally, uh, the, the, that name itself, the, the Taiping Kingdom, um, or the Taiping, the Taiping Tianguo would be its full name, which means the, the Heavenly Kingdom of Great Peace, which is very ironic and kind of funny in its own way. Um, so there are certainly elements of it being a guerrilla-style conflict of hit-and-run secret attacks, striking by night, that sort of thing. But at the same time, the goal of this kingdom is, again, it's kind of right there in the name as well. They establish their own borders. They establish their own nation within the larger uh, Qing empire. And they fortify that and make, to some extent at least, to, to a large extent, control those borders for a time period. So, so to that extent, at least, it's, it is um, something of a more conventional conflict, uh, as it were, of, of there is a place and a uh, capital and a person whom they are trying to stake out a position for. So I guess it's both at once in a certain way. And let, just to this question about it being so bloody, um, 
you know, like I say, tens of millions dead. It is difficult with any statistics before the 20th century, isn't it? But um, how, how and why is that, is that the case? You know, does this provoke, um, does, does the disruption of war cause wider kind of societal breakdown and that sort of thing? Or, or are the both sides particularly kind of bloodthirsty with their enemies? Well, that is a um, that is a good question. There are elements of a lot of things going on at the time. Like we kind of talked about before, the mid to late um, 19th century China is a rather chaotic place, both in terms of sort of the situation on the ground, in terms of uh, disasters happening, crop failures and what have you the foreign intervention on the outside disrupting that sort of thing. But a lot of this um, was uh, sort of a calculated cruelty. Uh, this sort of idea that um, if we just crack down hard enough on these rebels, then the then they'll, they'll, they'll learn that they can't do that. They'll just they'll they'll learn that they can't do that. The, the ones who are still alive, they'll figure out that they can't uh, rebel against us, and they will stop doing it. And as you know, as Princess Leia said to Grand Moff Tarkin, the more you tighten your grip, the more they'll slip through your fingers. Um, so it's this adverse effect of of the the harder the government tends to crack down these sorts of internal, especially religiously driven movements, the more determined and the more um, intransigent these movements tend to become, which then facilitates even harsher crackdowns by the government. It's a pretty, um, yeah, it's a pretty bleak picture. <laughs> um, so, if uh, the obviously the Qing Dynasty is using you know all means necessary as it sees it to crush this uprising, um, which as you say is probably going to have a counterproductive effect a lot of the time. Why um, why do people because presumably a very significant portion of the population still support the imperial regime um, in that the rebellion ultimately fails? So what what you know, where, where does the regime's support come from? Well, it had, it had staked out its position in one of the former uh, imperial capitals um, and would be the capital of China again um, later on. Uh, it had made its own capital, um, Nanjing, as of about 1853 or so. It managed to capture the city. And that had become its... Uh, focal point, and they had said, and this this rings very. Um, it, what I mean to say is that it has a lot of weight and a lot of import that this rebel movement had been able to capture one of the fundamental capitals of the country, to the point where what that does is it, it lends a level of legitimacy to the movement that it might not have had before. What this also allows in staking out a territory, in staking out a position and declaring a, an imperial capital of their own, 
it allows the Qing government to essentially say, okay, that's an exclusion zone. You either are there and you are part of them and therefore are a legitimate target, or you are out of there and you know, you're safe from us for the most part, at least. Um, which is kind of an iffy prospect at best. These, these uh, Qing imperial um, riders and, and war parties, they would, if there was even a prospect that you might be a part of one of these, these god societies, there was very little uh, appeal process going on. It's you just sort of, well, you, you believe in this, this Jesus God stuff where he got nailed to a cross. Well, we might do the same to you. Um, we might just cut your head off and put it on a pike. We, we, they, they were not shy about making very public grisly examples. Both the Ming and the Qing were very much into making very, um, overt examples of anyone who might question their authority um, and at scale for that matter. So as, as to your question, um, how did that, how did that affect it? Well, it certainly caused some level of movement, people who could uh, and did not want to be (laughs) in the Taiping kingdom would have left Um, people who could not, or sorry, people who also could move but wanted to be a part of it might have did in many cases go in or otherwise form separate communities outside of it. Uh, but there was still going to be a large segment of the population who either didn't know, didn't care, or didn't have the means to move in or out of wherever they were at the time. So there's still this really fungible border um, of of the populace. And a lot of times they're the ones who get caught up and suffer the most in terms of then the the military aspect of this of this rebellion um obviously in the end um as we've kind of alluded to the the Qing dynasty triumphs they they do crush the heavenly kingdom um how does that come about is there particularly kind of military victories is there they just superior kind of fighting force why is it that they triumph okay so as it happens, is that um, the Taiping Kingdom decides that one of the places it wants to take is one of the most important cities in China, where I live, uh, Shanghai, um, for pretty obvious reasons, trade and what have you. Um, so they, they try to take it around about 1860. Um, but as it's one of the more important areas. Uh, It's been heavily reinforced and the attack is repulsed by a lovely army by the name of the ever victorious army, (laughs) which is, you know, a great name, better name. Yeah. Um, This is actually commanded even by a non Chinese um, officer um, and they wind up not only repulsing the uh, the Taiping uh, army, but uh, pushing it back, and um, they'll ultimately become pretty significant in its ultimate defeat. Um, as it so happens, round about the same time, the the old emperor of Qing dies, 
and uh, the new one uh, takes his place. <clears throat> and so the Taipings think that this is going to be a great time. They're in the, the, the chaos of uh, succession. They're going to be able to really um, take advantage of this. So they um, try out for another expedition, and that one uh, fails as well. Uh, th- there are some gains, um, but ultimately it is it is pushed back. This means that uh, the major portion of that sort of that regular imperial army, that not imperial army, sorry, that regular sort of army that the Taipings had amassed versus the ongoing uh, subterranean uh, rebel movements were uh, had kind of exhausted themselves in this effort. So round about two or three years later, this, this means that with their offensive movement having kind of petered out, um, elements began surrendering. In 1863, the, the, the Taiping element around Chengdu in Sichuan surrenders to the Qing, um, and it's not great for him. He gets executed um, with some of his other members escaping. But at that point, especially with the um, with the, the the Shanghai expedition repulsed, it, it kind of becomes a matter of time. I wanted to ask, you know, what is going through Hong's mind right now? Because I, I would assume that, you know, is it fair to say that Hong is a man who's not exactly um, – in the best mental state already. And I'm assuming that these defeats, <laughs> I'm assuming that these defeats are uh, having a, a, an impact on his, his mental state as well. And I, I think I remember hearing that there was a lot of internal struggles within the heavenly kingdom at this time as well. So I can only, you know, imagine the kind of paranoia that's building up in his mind. Oh gosh. Yes. Now, I, <laughs> I I cannot speak as to what was in his mind, and I'm I would say I'm glad I can't. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I we wouldn't want to know. Uh, neither would I. <laughs> um, but you're I think you are absolutely right. The the paranoia, the the level of um, sort of self inflicted solitude and, and isolation, and just being able to trust nobody that that is absolutely building up in him over and over and over again because he is repeatedly as as happens uh, in any sort of uh, rebel movement especially but even you know any political movement in general there there's going to be um betrayals or perceived betrayals or turnabouts or whatever and especially when it's something as consequential as a war or an offensive any setback any turnaround is it's very easy to perceive as being someone must have turned against me and that's especially so when you believe and i i believe that he did believe this i don't think he was bullshitting through this mm-hmm. whole thing uh, <laughs> i i believe that he believed it um believed that he was divinely 
tapped and inspired and, and chosen to lead this new world order. So if God himself had said that you are the guy and you will lead this world into a new divine stage of whatever, and then things keep going wrong, you're going to start pointing fingers. And, and he, he does. And it, it just, and it only makes things worse, of course, because you start pointing fingers at your, your top people, uh, getting rid of them. And then you're left with the not top people, <laughs> which only <laughs> exacerbates things. Yeah. Um, so by the end stages of the rebellion, um, his cap, his city, where he is, is under direct siege by the Qing government. They're right outside the walls. They're not getting in yet. They won't be getting in for quite a while the city's well provisioned but obviously something's gone wrong <laughs> so something didn't go quite to plan and as such um he decides that you know what maybe it's somebody else's turn and he chooses his his teenage son hong tiang fu um, he says, okay, you're, you're the emperor now, son. Good luck. <laughs> it's quite the inheritance, isn't it? <laughs> While the enemy's oh, at the man. gates. Your turn. I salute you. Good luck, my boy. Oh, yeah. It, it, this, this, again, this goes back um, century, millennia in Chinese history of, of what do you do when your dynasty is about to fall Promote some little kid to take the fall for you. Um, uh, that, then, that's what happens at the very end of of the Qing dynasty as well with Puyi. I mean, absolutely, a, a child, you know, coming to to the to the throne. Oh, it's a long-standing tradition. You, I mean, it's you're hard pressed to find a uh, a Chinese dynasty that doesn't do that <laughs> because they're that it's it's virtually. Um, you 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 run out of competent if it's a good if it's a good dynasty let's say eventually you run out of competent adults and so you start um putting ch children onto the throne who are then controlled by either regents or their mothers the empress dowagers and then one of the officials gets it in their heads that hey i could do a better job than that guy so they put a child another child on the throne and say, okay, now give the throne to me. It, yeah. It's, there's almost a rule book by which you do this thing. It's crazy, but it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, one other aspect of the, of the civil war, and, and like a lot of civil wars, I believe the Taiping rebellion also features um, foreign intervention. Um, oh, so yes. the, I believe it's primarily the colonial British and French decide that this isn't something they can just sit out. Well, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? <laughs> well, right. Yeah, they um it's it's sort of it's but it's an opportunistic sort of thing. It's kind of in the middle of these two um what will be the the two um, opium wars. So 
Britain and France and the rest of the colonial powers very much feel like they can step in and interject whenever they feel like. And then it's it's also a matter of um, kind of protecting their investment a bit, isn't it? Of, um, well, we have a deal with the Qing government. They owe us this money. And if by some way they're overthrown and supplanted by this Haiping regime, well, they don't have any any truck with us, nor us with them, and and we we might have to do this whole shindig over again. Um, so so it's very self serving. Uh, it's of course, but you know, they, they, it's kind of um, one foot in, one foot out. They're, they're not really stepping in to try to mess with it too much because, as I see it, they they kind of understood that ultimately time was on the Qing Dynasty's side. Uh, they were going to get this under control, but if they didn't, they could always sort of nudge the uh, nudge the old meter in in the correct direction, which is what they wanted to do. Because there was also a uh, a real strong, I'm not even sure I'd call it undercurrent current, uh, both in the wider Qing Chinese society, but especially so the the, the Taiping movement of anti-foreign, anti-interventionist um, ideology, which one very much sympathizes with. Um, and as tone deaf <laughs> as the imperial forces could be about such things, I think that even at the time, they largely understood that, that if they put too much of their hand into that particular situation, they would probably only make things work worse for themselves. So while they were willing to kind of uh, put their thumb on the scale here and there, it, they weren't going to commit to any kind of a full scale um, intervention unless it really needed to happen, which it, at least in their perspective, which ultimately it did not. So more of a kind of touch on the rudder, keep it going in the right direction because we mm -hmm. don't want to be seen to be intervening because we know it will be counterproductive for the for the Qing if, if they seem to just be the kind of agents of foreign powers. I th yeah, I think it was, it was um, you know what, why we've already made ourselves the enemies before and they'll certainly have no problem doing so again in the future. But at the moment... The the war at this point is is engaged uh, with the the foreign occupying rulers of this country, and if the British Empire was good at anything, it was at touching off internal conflicts and then just sort of letting it uh, letting different countries fight against themselves, and just sort of pulling back and saying, ah, I no no no, it's not me, it's the, it's you guys, fight it out. Figure it out. Um, and we see that at play here as well. Uh, I'm not saying the British hushed off Taiping Rebellion, but the, I think they certainly saw the, the currents and the, the, um, the different forces at work and said, hey, you know, we'll get involved if we need to, but why not just let them pull themselves apart? 
so then, um, well, in our narrative, we're quite clearly reaching towards the point where this is all going to uh, collapse and, and it's going to result in, in the Qing victory that we've alluded to pretty much the whole episode. So how then does that actually come about? How well, is it that, that it's finally crushed the Taiping Rebellion? And what happens to um, uh, Hong? Well, he doesn't live to the end. <laughs> he doesn't make it. Um, probably he, best. I mean, it's really best for him. It's not best for his son, but it's best for him. He, like I said, uh, I think at the beginning, he's been sick his whole life. He's kind of going in and out of these sort of semi-comatose vision fugue states. Uh, he goes into another one round about the time he promotes his, his son. And falls sick and winds up dying. I mean, again, very convenient for him. Very good timing. Well done. Um, by the following year, the siege of Nanjing has gone as, you know, any siege that is, that doesn't have outside support ultimately goes, which is that eventually the city runs out of supplies and has no choice but to capitulate. Um, that is in 1864. And with that, you, you get the, the forcible destruction of the Taiping regime. Uh, at least it's nexus. There are still elements outside of the capital um, who continue the fight, who, you know, they're, they just are not prepared to give up. They're true believers. Um, this is especially in the southeast. This is, you know, the sort of the, the heartland where the the whole movement uh, began, and so they're the ones who have been part of it the longest. And in fact, it's going to last for oh gosh, eight uh, for another six or seven years after the fall of Nanjing until the the last major elements of the the Taiping um, never say dyers. Um, finally throw in the towel. And it, it does not go well for them uh, when, when they give up. Uh, they are, um, the, the ones who surrender are largely publicly executed in excruciating fashion. Um, I mean, this is, this is the time period where it's the, where the um, death by a thousand cuts is very much in fashion. Um where those sorts of torturous executions are just the sort of the go-to thing in, in the regime and where uh, punishment is not even limited to you. It can also be extended to your family and your family's family and your work associates and stuff like that. So these, these sorts of purges and bloodletting uh, goes on for a long time thereafter. <clears throat> but um, other elements probably better for them. They just refuse to give up and they, they die fighting. Um, it spills over into the South, uh, into um, Indochina, Southeast Asia as well. Um, but it all, it all wraps up around 1870 or so. Um, yeah. That's... What, what, um, sorry. What happens to the, the sun then when, when, Oh, when the gosh. city falls. 
they're all put to death <laughs> as is as is typical um anyone remotely connected with the hongs with hong Xiaochen or anyone uh directly related to him is um ignominiously put to death as an example they are not treated with any sort of imperial favor they are not um given any sort of honor either in life or posthumously they are just they're treated as as rebel leaders and executed as such so then go on about the worst possible fate no yeah no um what's then you know you say all kind of wraps up by about 1870 what's the legacy i suppose of this huge civil war for chinese you know society for the Qing dynasty you know what are the long-lasting effects napoleon bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history over 200 years after his death people are still debating his legacy he was a man of contradictions a tyrant and a reformer a liberator and an oppressor a revolutionary and a reactionary his biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Well, what it does is, uh, in terms of its legacy and its long-lasting effects, is um, in itself, for its own methods and, and means and, and motivations, not a lot. Um, it doesn't achieve much in the way of any of the goals that it wanted to for Chinese society. It doesn't reform or change the Qing government. In fact, in many ways, it does the opposite of that. It forces the Qing government into a much more hardline, anti-Western um, anything stance, um, anti any sort of movement that might be against the the baseline Qing power. Um, it pits the, the North against the South again in China, which is a longstanding tradition almost, where you have the political base of power in the North and then this rebel power in the South. So it makes the, the Northern regime much more, much more distrustful of the South. Um, in terms of Chinese power and military ability overall, it is a real stumbling block um, in that they were forced to devote the vast majority of China's military power towards fighting this internal rebellion, while at the same time also trying to deal with um, external colonial powers. And uh, that's not to say that the result would have been different if if there somehow had not been a if there somehow had not been a Taiping rebellion 
at the same time. Um, I'm not convinced that there would have been a significant difference in the outcome of the wars against the Western imperial powers uh, because most of China's military forces were land-based, whereas most of the conflict between China and the West was naval, which is something that um, the Chinese military was just un fundamentally unprepared for and, and would not have been more prepared for uh, without without the um, without the Taiping rebe rebellion. Um, I it would like I said before. I think it calcifies this sort of um, anti-foreign sentiment. Um, Within, especially the elite, the the Qing um, royal family and government, which will ultimately um, make them much more open to the idea of siding with the uh, the boxers about a half century later, which is a adamantly anti foreign, anti Christian um, movement aimed at expelling all foreign presence from China. And, you know, making chain great again. <clears throat> so th that would, uh, that's what I would say would be its major um, legacies. Un unfortunately, at least from the perspective of the Taipings themselves, we can just see them as kind of the, the one of the last, or at least last so far, um, elements of that syncretic, um, millennialist sort of um, cultist movement, which from time to time has bubbled up and really challenged the ruling regime when, uh, when times get tough and is often, and often very bloodily, put down. I'm interested in um, then the extent to which um, the Taiping Rebellion is, you know, remembered today in China, is it still a significant event or is it very much overshadowed by, you know, the Chinese Civil War about 100 years later? Um, is it still something that has a, has a resonance or is it just a kind of forgotten chapter of, of history? It's not forgotten. Um, but it's also, I don't think it's some... It's not remembered as some defining chapter either. In spite of its huge loss of life and in spite of its tremendous scope and scale, it is overshadowed. Overshadowed. Not by the Chinese Civil War per se, but from the um, it's actually overshadowed much more by the the, the foreign um, wars and occupations that both bookended that rebellion itself and then came after um, in the form of the, the, the nine nation alliance that invaded China at the end of the uh, 19th century as well. So that has been the, the narrative which has been most suitable in the last century plus to remember and to push a, an, indigenous rebellion that um, took elements of both native and foreign beliefs and combined them together into a new sort of ideology that was anti-Manchurian. Just, it doesn't have the same sort of 
um, oomph that fighting the good fight against the Western imperialist powers um, has. So, you know, as I, we all know, uh, history and historiography is a process of writing and rewriting the narrative as it's um, deemed fit by the society that's writing it. So for China itself, that has been the, the tact that which it has taken. <laughs> Peter, I don't know at this point, um, you had any other questions for any aspects of it? Like, I guess less of a question and more just of a kind of, you know, discussion point in general is I, I find it fascinating how, you know, this is the second, if I remember correctly, this is the second bloodiest conflict in all of human history just after World War II, right? Ooh, uh, it's right up there. Uh, yeah. And yet, at least in the West, it's incredibly unknown. You know, it, it's a yeah. it's a very, very little known thing. And I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't really understand why, because in and of its own right, it, it's such an, a, a fascinating and important piece of history. I absolutely agree with you. Um, and the, <laughs> I, I hear the question stated there, even, even though it's unstated. <laughs> why is that? Um, and as insofar as I can really given any kind of an answer it's that for a very long period of time and i think we're doing um a good service here today for instance in trying to rectify that but for a very long period of time the internal squabbles of natives in far off places was simply not worthy of documenting mm. um for proper historians as it were you know so yeah. it's um it it's it's a uh, euro western centric it's it it's it's, it's uh, there's a large degree of of racism to it that yeah there's no reason that it shouldn't be it absolutely should be one of the <laughs> central events that we study when we look at the 1800s and the fact that it isn't is um is it? I, I don't think there's an excuse for it, and I think it it should be. Yeah, and I I think also you know it's it's a very interesting kind of look at the way cult mentality can have a, a huge impact on the societies yeah. that you know it takes place in, or in just in society in general, I suppose. I uh, I mean because this started out as as unfeasible you know it was it was one it was a man who who in his mind had ascended to heaven and in a dream <laughs> yeah, yeah in a dream came back to earth read a pamphlet like you said and then i mean in a remarkably short amount of time raises a massive army and then before you know it there's so many lives lost and and i i think it's i think it's uh it's an important yeah. kind of look at, at at cult 
thinking. Absolutely. I think that's, it is absolutely incredible. And I, I think the fact that it happens relatively close to our own time makes it seem in a way less feasible. I think, uh, you know, f- for instance, if we go back, you know, 1100 or so years before this, though, we find it a lot less, um, I guess, unbelievable that um, uh, a, a fairly wealthy son of a merchant in um, Medina <laughs> gets has a dream in a cave that he's heard uh, uh, an angel and then goes on a quest and um, founds Islam mm. and takes, you know, near Asia, Western Asia by storm. It, it, these things do happen. Um, and <clears throat> we could look even closer to the modern day itself of, uh, for instance, um, uh, a, a, another tragedy of a much smaller scale. Um, uh, Jim, jo- Jim Jones yeah. and, yeah. um, uh, that, that whole, uh, tragedy as well, but you're absolutely right that it, it really does speak to, um, the, the, uh, the way that a cult operates, the way that, a, the way that it um, inculcates people, allows people to give up their own, uh, perhaps give up their own individuality or individual will to something that they perceive as being uh, greater than that. Um, because you see it not only in the, the Taiping Kingdom, but even before in the, the Red Turban Rebellion that uh, pre- precedes the, the Ming, of people knowing, going in, knowing full well that it will mean their deaths. They are not blind to it. They know what it means to join this sort of movement, and they're A-OK with that because they believe in it. Um, and to someone like me, that's I, I can't put my head around that. Uh, I don't know. But you have to, I guess, I have to take them at their word that that, that is something that they truly do go into with eyes wide open. In, a, in at least a certain sense. And it is fascinating. It's, yeah, it, and it speaks to something, I think, about the human psyche, doesn't it? Um, about the human condition. And as you say, we kind of, to ancient and medieval history, we kind of write it off almost as though those people a very long time ago could somehow be you know, influenced by ideas. And yet, I think that's a really interesting point about this being... You know, not even two hundred years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, this, um, yeah, this was happening kind of not quite concurrent. Well, actually, was it happening concurrently with the American Civil War? Yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> again, even you know, I, I, I sometimes tend to think about you know things, different events in history that happen at the same time that you wouldn't think happen at the same time. This is one of them. Right. No, it's it's kind of funny to think, you know, that in, in the U.S., you know, the Civil War is, oh, my gosh, it's some seminal event. It's the the the, the most devastating conflict that the, the country ever went through with the most casualties, and the most uh, deaths of any war the U.S. has ever been in, both world wars included. And if you put that in the context of 
the thing going on on the other side of the world at the same moments, that's it's almost a rounding error. It's it's kind of crazy. <laughs> so with the sure. Heavenly Kingdom, I, I think, you know, from my knowledge, there were people who outside of the core group who, you know, believed what uh, Ong was saying. There were people who came along with it just because of, you know, they felt safety in numbers. Uh, they felt like mm-hmm. it was better for them than staying in their hometown because, you know, they, they were already in a, in a war torn place. So why not go with this or that? Absolutely. You see that in, um, you know, rebel, rebel, uh, rebel torn or war torn regions all the time as well of, um, you know, I might, I might get in trouble with the distant authority six months from now when, when they arrive, if they arrive, hmm. but I'll get in trouble tomorrow if I don't, uh, you know, give my allegiance over to the rebels who control this region today. Yeah. Uh, there's certainly a lot of that element. And then there's also the element of people who say, listen, I don't know about this whole religion stuff, but I know that I don't like the Qing government. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that I think they're screwing us all over. Um, and I think, you know, they should get out. And so if, if you want to say that you're the son of God and the brother of Jesus or whatever, and you're going to help us take back our country, whatever, man. Yeah. Okay. I'll join you. So it's just, yeah, it's just really this confluence of, of factors. It's, it's not just one religious movement it's just kind of all under the same umbrella a lot of the times yeah and i know that like in within heavenly kingdom itself there are already some like some i i I alluded to this earlier there were some divides between like even the leadership like there was a there was a a guy who was who was hong's essentially right hand man and he (laughs) was i think he was the voice of god um don't remember yeah. his name but he was he was oh. the voice of god and he he basically st- like wanted to kind of make power plays and there was this whole thing there's a really weird interesting dynamic because part of it was like hong was trying to figure out is he actually is it actually god speaking through him if it's not can i say that Will that disenfranchise people who follow me? Right. And, and yeah, and it, it, especially with these sort of with these sort of um, profit based movements, um, that it, it does tend to be this really delicate balancing act or, or juggling act of of even the people in power. They're constantly having to weigh where they stand what they say against what the people expect them to say. So it's even though I am the, the heavenly King and I have uh, all the power per se, uh, really even the guy at the top has to worry about whether he's going to make the wrong step or whether or not his, um, his voice of God, as it were, mm-hmm. um, might contradict him in which case it might all, rapidly crumble right underneath his feet it's it's a it's it's no wonder that these sorts of movements um 
tend to not hold together very long <laughs> a lot of the time, which mm. is makes it very remarkable in the case like the uh, the Taiping Rebellion, uh, for instance, that it was able to um, endure as long as it did. And even under the stresses that it had uh, by towards the end of the conflict, it was still able to kind of essentially hold itself together right up until the enemy was battering down the gates. Yeah. I think in the end he did, uh, Hong did end up killing the uh, supposed voice of God, his right-hand man. And that um, what that sounds right. Yeah. That sounds like something that would happen. <laughs> and I, I think I think he did like I think he honored him even in death because again he was you know afraid that it would disenfranchise people who followed him. So yeah. Oh oh, I found him. Okay, mm. Young Xiuqing. Yes, yes, there he is, the Eastern King. Yes, they, yeah. the naming conventions for for the heavenly kingdom are really interesting because they always name them. There was like the peace King. There was the Eastern King. There's the North King, South King. And part of, part of that is the, the fact that it doesn't translate awesomely. Yeah. It's not, it's um, not, it's never a one-to-one thing really. Yeah. Cause it's, it's all in Chinese. It's all going to be Wang which translates variously depending on how you want to use it. It can be used as king, but it can also be used as prince mm. or so it's um, yes. So he was the, the Eastern King or the Eastern Prince. However, one wants to render it young Xiuqing. He was murdered as part of a purge <laughs> and, and then, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, after death, honored and given you know posthumous titles and, and what have you because of course he's no threat in death yes so let's elevate him <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh interesting how that works <laughs> yes markedly unlike someone like stalin who would kill you and then erase you from all of time <laughs> thinking of trotsky thinking of trotsky who? Who? I've never heard of that. Oh, I don't know. No. <laughs> Have I said something wrong? <laughs> the King of Mexico. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Chris, for coming on the show. It's been a really fascinating discussion. We'd love it if all of our listeners would go check out his podcast, The History of China. Uh, there'll be a link to that down in the description. So thank you, Chris. Well, it's been my pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And from us here at History's Most, I've been Peter. And I've been Alex. And thanks for listening. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.